Good morning again and welcome. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter to the Corinthians, and uh, the end of chapter 5, and then verse and chapter 6 we'll be looking at this morning. Well, how did it go? My wife has faithfully asked me that question hundreds, maybe thousands of times over the past 25 years or so, typically on the occasion of my returning home from some event where I had been preaching or teaching some small group or some class, or some congregation, or occasionally some conference somewhere. And the response I've given almost as frequently as the question has been asked is, well, no one threw anything. Which for me is a combination of a pathetic attempt at humor and simultaneously a hope that we can change the subject to something other than how things went. But what for me is a sad, silly response or even diversionary tactic would have been nothing of the sort for the Apostle Paul. If people in his day had asked him how things went upon his return from yet another ministry tour, Paul could and would have said all kinds of things including, well, they threw a lot of rocks at me. Or I received 39 lashes and was beaten within an inch of my life. Or I was shipwrecked along the way. Or I ended up in jail again. For Paul, in his particular context, engaging in gospel ministry was a dangerous and often painful exercise. And while Paul didn't look forward to those sorts of things happening, they went with the territory, so to speak. And Paul actually saw them as something that served to confirm and validate his genuine authority as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the verses before us this morning, we'll hear further about what Paul has to say on these and other matters. But before we do, let's pray together. Father in heaven, hear us now as we ask you to guide us into these particular truths so that we understand what you intended, so that we hear what you wanted us to hear you saying when you had these words recorded by your servant Paul. Protect us from falsehood and misunderstandings. Protect us from ourselves and all the ways we can mishear you by distorting your truth, by qualifying it, by ignoring it, or by trivializing it. Help us to have an understanding that includes knowing how these truths apply, how they should change the way we think and live. And use these things to draw us closer to yourself, to cause us to be more appreciative of who you are, to cause us to want more and more to be like you. And we ask these things in the name of the one without whom this prayer would not be possible. The Lord Jesus, amen. Now, if you've been with us for any part of this series, then you'll know that in this letter, we've seen Paul in the middle of this kind of ongoing dialogue or conversation with the people in the church that he had planted at Corinth. Ever since he first founded that church, Various communications have taken place between them, some in person, some through correspondence, 
some through a third party. And that fact has clearly influenced the shape and structure of this letter. Paul's response, his flow of thought, the things that he leaves out, the things he assumes, the shifts of emphases, all of those things in this letter are coming more out of the shared experiences that they have than they are out of any desire of Paul's to construct a logically ordered paper or theological treatise. Just as in a conversation, you can find yourself moving over a whole range of topics. So it's often the case with Paul's letters. However, those realities notwithstanding, there are some discernible patterns to be found in this letter. One of them being the fact that pretty much everything found here falls under one of three general headings, and you've heard these before. But firstly, Paul's dis- we see in this letter uh, Paul's description and defense of different practices and decisions that he has made along the way. Secondly, we see his description and defense of various perspectives that have guided him, which continued to guide him in his ministry as an apostle. Thirdly, we see Paul's description and defense of his position of genuine authority as an apostle. And not just as an apostle, as their apostle. God having set Paul apart specifically for the mission to the non-Jewish peoples. Now, in the most recent studies of this letter, we've sent, spent a fair bit of time looking at things that fall into that uh, second category, that is, perspectives that move and motivate Paul as an apostle. Some of those include perspectives on who and what is, uh, are the real source of power in Christian ministry, perspectives on what it is that really commends a ministry as being genuinely commissioned by the Lord Jesus, perspectives on the paradoxical nature of God's working, that is, strength shown through weakness, things like that. A realistic perspective on the realities of living and ministering in a world with bodies that show the effects of our fallenness every day. And yet with that, a balancing perspective on the very real hope that we have for a future resurrection, where we'll receive new resurrection bodies because of Christ's finished work on the cross. All of those are perspectives that have guided Paul along the way. And in reflecting on that last item, the coming resurrection and return of Christ and all that goes with it, as Paul thinks about that, he recalls one other important event that will accompany that return of Christ, and that is the judgment of Christ. And and while there will be a universal aspect of that judgment, what Paul has in view in this letter, at this point in this letter, is the evaluation of believers that will take place in which the deeds done in the body will be examined and on the basis of which there will be the very real possibility of eternal reward or lack thereof. And so it is that in the midst of thinking about those sorts of things, Paul is led to think again of the situation of the Corinthian believers uh, with so many of them who have been or are being led astray by false teachers and who as a consequence were very much in danger of coming out on the short end of that coming believer's evaluation. And as he thinks of these things and being further compelled as he is by the Christ's love, Paul feels driven to make yet another appeal appeal to the Corinthian believers. He wants them to abandon the path they are currently on. He wants them to return again to the things that they had first been taught and to the one who had first taught those things to them. 
And that last bit, you see, was the key. If Paul could regain their loyalty, if he could move them away from their new dependence on and allegiance to the false teachers, then Paul could begin to address the numerous problems that had arisen since he'd moved away from them. But the key to all of that, of course, would be Paul's ability to win them over again. And so it is that the verses before us this morning are really aimed at doing just that. And whereas in our last study we saw a couple of things that moved Paul to reach out to them, this morning we'll look at the sort of things that Paul hopes will move the Corinthians back in his direction. Things that he hopes will cause them to respond to him. And in particular we'll see three things that ought to influence the Corinthians in their attitude and response. Firstly, the love of Christ is seen in the cross. Secondly, the danger of receiving the grace of God in vain. And thirdly, the fact that Paul, as a proven and genuine apostle, is calling them to be reconciled. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's turn now to the passage before us and hear what Paul has to say. Starting at verse 21, actually, of chapter 5. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you, not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we're treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children. We widen your hearts also. The first appeal that Paul makes to the Corinthians is found, I think, in 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Corinthians should reconcile themselves to God by reconciling themselves through God's apostle because of Christ's sacrificial love for them, most clearly seen on the cross. In our last look at this letter, we spent the majority of our time looking at this thing called the love of Christ and what that really means. And we saw it as something that motivated Paul. And uh, so we're not going to spend uh, any much additional time uh, this week on that matter as we've really explored that, except to say this, that Paul's expectation and hope in saying these things, surely, was that he wouldn't be the only one motivated by Christ's love. Paul's hope surely was that the Corinthians too would be moved to action 
by remembering what Christ had done, taking upon himself the sins of his people and in return crediting them with his righteousness. A God who would go to such lengths to eternally repair and secure a relationship with people who neither earned it or deserved it was a God worth one's highest devotion. And Paul's reminders of what God had done, it seems to me, were intended partly to influence the Corinthians to return to a position of faithfulness, even as they had that same effect upon Paul. The second thing that we see here, and which Paul offers up as both a warning and a kind of cautionary motivation, is the fact that, as Paul saw it, the Corinthians, or at least some of them, were in danger of receiving the grace of God in vain. Now, before we look at what Paul means by this, we need to be clear on what Paul doesn't and can't mean by this. Paul doesn't mean that some of the Corinthians are in danger of losing their salvation. Right? He's made that only too clear in too many other places, that the grace of God that brings about salvation is not something that can ever be lost or undone or nullified in any way. So whatever Paul means by receiving the grace of God, he isn't referring to the Corinthian salvation. He isn't suggesting that they might somehow lose it once they've truly attained it. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, Paul views the Corinthians, or at least some subset of that whole group, as being poised somewhere between himself over here and the false teachers. And they're sort of this group who are kind of in the middle and who've been easily swayed first one way and then the other. Paul sees himself as the one who's influenced them in a good direction, as the one who's been an agent of God's grace toward the Corinthians. He's the one through whom they first heard the message of grace in the gospel of Jesus. It was his preaching to which they first responded, or so it seemed, and which had led to their aligning themselves with the cause of Christ in the first place. But now, because of the things they were doing, because of the things they were saying, because of some of the unbiblical things they'd been led to believe, and because of their attitude toward Paul, because of all these things and more, Paul's starting to wonder, at least for some of them, if their apparent previous receptivity was just that, merely apparent and not real or lasting. And as Paul writes about these things, surely he has in mind things like the parable of the soils that Jesus had taught. You remember that parable? A person goes out into a field, sows some seed. Some of the seed lands on a footpath and the birds eat it up. Some of it lands on rocky, shallow soil and dies from lack of moisture. Some of it lands on decent enough soil, but it gets choked out by weeds and thorns. They're also growing in the same soil. Some of it lands on good soil and produces a great abundance. See Luke 8. As Jesus explains in the parable, the seed represents the word of God that is sown in different soils, that is different people's hearts. And in some cases there's a response of sorts that nevertheless is later on shown to be fleeting and temporary because the word did not take root deeply within them. That is, in a permanent and transforming way. This is the sort of reality that's behind the words we find in other places like Hebrews 6 and 10 where it talks about people having tasted of the heavenly gift and other such language, but in the end these same people are said to fall away, never to repent again. 
The New Testament language in such places, and Paul's language in particular here, indicate that there is a level of responsiveness to God's grace that is possible, but it is not necessarily an outworking of a spirit-regenerated heart and whose true nature over time and through trial and circumstance is made more and more evident. And so it is that Paul's appeal to the Corinthians to be reconciled and to not receive the grace of God in vain is similar in nature to the appeal that Jesus regularly made when he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It was a call that would demonstrate by their manner of response whether or not they had in fact received the grace of God as administered through Paul in vain. Their obedient response to the things Paul was saying right now in this letter would be a strong indicator of where they stood with regard to their being genuine benefactors of God's saving grace or not. And included in this appeal is a brief quotation from Isaiah 49.8 found there in verse 2. While the exact point that Paul's trying to make here is not absolutely clear, he does seem to be, at least not to me, uh, he does seem to be, by these words, adding a note of urgency and responsibility to his appeal. You know, in Isaiah, God's speaking of the time of Israel's release from their captivity to Babylon. It was a great moment of deliverance for them. And it called for them to respond faithfully to their delivering God. And so in quoting that and saying, now is the favorable time, now is the day of salvation, Paul seems to be implying that the Corinthians are in the same situation as the Israelites of old. They too have experienced God's great deliverance in Christ, indeed the greatest of all possible deliverances, and as such, they too ought to respond in faith to the God who's delivered them. And they should respond now. Immediately, today, while there is still opportunity. And the activity that Paul is engaged in here, calling people back to faithfulness, lovingly challenging people to show by their responsiveness that they truly haven't received the grace of God in vain, that activity, that ministry, is one that continues today, every time you and I take on that same role for one another or for, for another person, or conversely, every time someone assumes that role for us. You know, wandering away is a bad thing, certainly. When God's people, when you and I begin to act and speak in ways that are unfaithful and dishonoring to God, that is no small matter. But, those things, as bad as they are, are not in and of themselves a reason to lose hope. They're not a sign that all is lost. But what is a disturbing sign, and ought to be a disquieting reality, is when the call to be reconciled is not heeded. What is troubling is when there is no desire to return to faithfulness. When no appeal, no matter how graciously or lovingly administered, is positively responded to. Paul's hope is that the Corinthians will not be like that. 
Paul's hope is that they will show by their response to him that their initial reception many months before now was not just smoke and mirrors. The third appeal, and by far the most detailed one, is seen in verses 3 to 10, where Paul takes the Corinthians through this uh, litany of personal experiences, all of which are aimed at demonstrating that he, unlike the false teachers, is a genuine apostle and has endured a great deal for the sake of the gospel and for their sakes as well. His actions reveal a deep, abiding affection for the Corinthians and he pleads with them on that basis to open up their hearts to him again. That's the overall thrust of verses 3 to 10, but it'll be helpful to take a few moments to unpack these verses a little further. And in so doing, I want you to see three different, it's always three, isn't it? Three different ways that Paul endeavors to show that he is a proven and genuine apostle, and therefore worthy of being listened to. The first point Paul makes is to remind the Corinthians that he has put no obstacle in their way. No obstacle. A statement that reads very simply, very quickly, to be sure, but it's not at all simplistic in its implications. You know, for Paul to be able to make the claim that he put no obstacle in their way is quite an impressive statement to make. Paul is saying that whatever reasons the Corinthians might give for rejecting his appeals, whatever excuses they might come up with, the one thing they could not do was lay the blame any of it, at Paul's feet. And you can be sure that given the level of opposition that there was to Paul, there would have been any number of people who were looking eagerly for some deficiency in him that would justify, at least in their minds, the rejection of his message. You know, what fearsome and challenging words these are. Not just for those engaged in vocational ministry, but for every believer. I mean, on the one hand, they do call us as God's ambassadors to a high standard. They lay upon us a real responsibility to live in ways that are honoring to the Lord Jesus Christ. On the other hand, without taking anything away from that, I do not think that these words require of us a kind of perfection that, frankly, none of us, including the Apostle Paul, could ever or did ever attain to. You know, even when our feet of clay become all too evident, even when we inevitably sin in the presence of and or against other people, even then there is still hope that we might avoid putting an obstacle in the path of another. You see, if on those occasions, if our repentance is at least as notorious as our sin, if we're clearly and obviously troubled by what we've done, even then our brokenness, our brokenness in the Father's hands can avoid becoming an... uh, Avoid becoming an obstacle. In fact, it can be used by God to draw people to the beauty of a Savior that could work that kind of humility into a person's life and heart. 
So again, Paul says he's put no obstacle in the Corinthians' path. The second move that Paul makes here is in verses 3 to 10. He, he attempts to reassert this legitimacy of his apostolic authority, as he's already been mentioned. And, and the second move in here is to take the Corinthians through this, like I said, a whole litany of things that have happened, as well as mentioning various past and present realities that define Paul's life and experience up to the moment, and which he now offers as proof positive that he is the genuine article, and therefore a man to be listened to, whose words ought to be taken to heart. Now, we're not going to do it today, but it would be worth the effort sometime to work through these this particular section at an even slower pace. Now, there's all kinds of treasures to be unearthed here, as this is a passage I believe has a great deal to say about faithfully living and ministering in Jesus' name and what that's all about. However, because our time's short, we're going to deal with these verses in a more cursory fashion, starting with verses 4 to 5, which in the main are Paul's description of various troubles that he's encountered along the way. As we turn our focus to these verses, there are some distinctions that some commentators have pointed out, which I think are worth noting, even if we can't go into great detail. Look at those first three troubles mentioned. Afflictions, hardships, calamities. Uh, those are more generalized descriptions of things, like, which, I, like I said, we could say a lot more about, but they're more generalized descriptions of things that Paul has endured. Right? They're necessities. They're unavoidable realities that accrue to Paul's ministry, as one writer puts it, and which do take a definite toll upon him, and indeed upon anyone who serves in a similar role. The next three troubles, beatings, riots, imprisonments, they're also hardships to be sure, but the ones listed here, unlike the first three, are more specific examples of what was generally alluded to before. Now, if you read the book of Acts, for example, you'll see these very things mentioned in different places as the various missionary journeys of Paul are discussed. The next three troubles, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, can also be distinguished in that these, unlike the previous six, are more things that were not so much inflicted upon Paul as are things that he voluntarily submitted himself to or things that he brought upon himself as a consequence of his commitment to faithful ministry. But you take them all together, right? Take that list together. And the things cataloged here are a pretty daunting description of what being set apart as an apostle of Jesus meant for Paul. It meant huge personal sacrifices. It meant pain such as few of any of us in this room have ever experienced. It meant being humiliated. It meant being a target for spit. It meant being attacked by mobs and thrown into prison. And Paul's only reason for mentioning these things is not to evoke sympathy, but to draw a contrast between himself and the false teachers who had endured none of these things and who, if they had, would have certainly turned and run with their tails between their legs. Right on the heels of this, right after listing various troubles and hardships, Paul continues with the list, but he shifts gears. Now instead of rattling off a sequence of difficulties, he catalogs a number of positive things. Purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, etc. 
Now, what he seems to be describing here is the manner in which he conducted himself, the way in which his ministry was carried out, even in the midst of all these hardships just mentioned. Even while all that's going on, these positive things are the way that he conducted his ministry nevertheless. You may recall, Paul's already distanced himself in a previous section from the false teachers by saying that he, in contrast to them, did not engage in things like cunning or deception, nor did he operate in disgraceful or underhanded ways. His ministry was one of integrity and openness and consisted of the sort of things that are now listed more particularly here. It was a ministry of the Spirit, not of the flesh. And then as if he hasn't said enough already, he runs off this final list starting in verse 8, continuing through to verse 10, this series of contrasts. Honor, dishonor. Slander, praise. Treated as imposters and yet remaining true. And what you have with all of these contrasts is a description of the paradoxical shape that Paul's life had taken ever since he had been enlisted in the cause of Christ. One writer talks about this way. He says, The minister of Christ is not immune from the fluctuating fashions and fickle judgments of this world. That is the point of this catalog of opposites, of which this is the first. He will have bitter enemies as well as devoted friends. Some will hold him in high esteem, while others will heap insult and dishonor upon him. Even the same people may show a complete alteration of attitude toward him. Now in some ways this catalog of contrasts is just further illustration of the hardships he's already listed. However, I think Paul's manner of setting them out separately here and in the way that he has, I think is an attempt to show, verbally at least, the craziness, right? the tension the deeply stressful nature of the life that had been thrust upon him as God's servant. At any given moment, he was honored and praised from one quarter even while he was being slandered and dishonored from another. He had little in the way of possessions and yet had a wealth that money could not buy. He had a joy that was deep and grounded in the truth of the gospel, absolutely, and yet... Not a moment passed when he did not feel the weight and the sadness and the burden of those over whom God had given him pastoral oversight. And as you continue, you could continue on through the list, but I think what Paul does, as he sets this out, he does this because he wants to show the Corinthians that his calling has meant living in this kind of tension, this sort of craziness. Is constantly living on that kind of a roller coaster. But again, Paul's purpose in highlighting these things, not to draw attention or sympathy to himself, not for the sake of self-promotion, it's his attempt to somehow get these wayward and rebellious Corinthians to see that it was he and not the newcomers in Corinth that was the real thing. Paul's desire... To see them be reconciled to God was so great. And his love for them so deep that he was willing to even do things that he despised doing. Such as talking about himself and his sufferings. He hated doing that. But he did it because it was the only thing he could do to get their attention. And he did it if only 
by doing it, somehow he might get through to them. I've said enough about that. And of all the ways we might respond to these things in this passage, um, I think the one response I would submit to you this morning is this. To pray. Pray for those people all over the world right now who, like Paul, are in similar circumstances to the one described here, undergoing great hardships for the sake of the gospel. Pray for them to be faithful. Pray for them to keep their eyes fixed on Jesus who is their hope. Secondly, pray for those people in God's church everywhere who, like the Corinthians, have been led astray from their first love and from the truth and are venturing in other directions. Pray that God would work through people already in their life or maybe would bring new people into their life who would be compelled by the love of Christ to pursue them and to call them back to be reconciled with God. Thirdly, pray for yourself that God might use you, like Paul, to be an agent of reconciliation in the lives of those that you know. People that you're aware of who have wandered or who are beginning to wander from the truth. Pray that God will give you the boldness and the wisdom to imitate Paul in these practices. And then with that, if you're going to pray that, pray this. Pray that God would show you your own heart, would reveal to you the ways in which you may be more like the Corinthians than you care to admit. Pray that he would show you the places where you have wandered or have begun to wander. That he would always surround you with pastors and brothers and sisters in the Lord who love you enough to not be content to just sit and watch you self-destruct. Let's pray. Father in heaven, take this reading of your word. Filter out, please, all the things that are just wrong or unhelpful. And leave us with only good things. And then make those good things a part of who you're making us to be. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We now receive the morning offering. For those who are collecting that, now is the time to come forward.